Hi, I'm Valerie Steele, Director and Chief Curator of the Museum at FIT, the most fashionable museum in New York City. Welcome to our Fashion Culture podcast series, featuring lectures and conversations about fashion. If you like what you hear, please share your thoughts on social media using the hashtag FashionCulture. Thank you so much for being here. I'm Valerie Steele. This is the Fashion Culture Program for the Museum at FIT. And I'm delighted that tonight I'll be in conversation with Nicole Miller. So thank you, Nicole. Thank you. It's great to be here. I wanted to start way back when you were a child. And I wondered if you could start by telling us about your early life and how your family influenced you. Okay. Well, so one important thing in my past was my mother was from Paris. And she was a very, very chic lady back in the day. So as a child, she always would order magazines from Paris, from France. So I always had French fashion magazines. Of course, they came by boat, and they took about two months to arrive. But I would just live for getting those French fashion magazines, particularly Marie Marie Claire. That, I think, was my favorite one. Um, Anyway, so my whole life, I just dreamed about Paris and going to Paris and fashion and everything. It was just like the biggest thing to me. And of course, I was in this small town in Massachusetts, and everybody was um, very, very conservative. (laughs) Um, But anyway, I was just obsessed with fashion from a very early age. And my mother was a great influence. And I also had her old clothes. She had a lot of her clothes from Paris, too, which were beautifully made. So did you ever wear those? I, I did. Actually, I wore a lot of them in high school. And uh, my mother was in Paris during the war, in World War II. And um, she was a very brave, brave woman, because the food in Paris was terrible. There was no food, and it was occupied by the Germans. And she would go out to the country, and she would smuggle food through the German lines. And so she was the best-dressed person in Paris, because she would bring food back for the shoemaker (laughs) and the tailor. And, And to thank her, they would make her clothes. So... She was very well-dressed. That's fascinating. So from the beginning, my next question was, how did you know you, when did you get interested in fashion? But clearly, it was pretty much from birth. Well, I mean, like I said, I was always obsessed with the, the, the um, French fashion magazines. And through high school, I learned how to make my own clothes. Um, when I couldn't get to New York, but one thing, when I could get to New York, I would always go to paraphernalia. And I wish I had saved those clothes, but I... You guys probably have never heard of the paraphernalia stores, but in the 60s, they were the coolest stores around. And I think Betsy Johnson used to design for them, too. Yes, she did. So if ever I got a chance to go to New York, I would immediately go shopping and and get things there. And if I couldn't get to New York, I would make my own clothes. And um, early on, I would buy patterns, and I would alter them, and I would turn them into my design, because I couldn't really make my own patterns yet. I didn't know how. So I was sort of like cutting and pasting and, and you know, altering things to be my own idea. That's and um, I wish I had, my parents didn't take a lot of pictures of me in high school. I don't know why. I don't think they liked my clothes. <laughs> but um, I remember I had this like, great 1960s suit and it had a huge patent leather belt with a big buckle on it. And it was like 
you know, kind of Edwardian and had like three gold buttons. And then I always got my hair cut at Sassoon. I loved Fidel Sassoon. And so um, continuing on my quest for fashion, actually when I was hi in high school, I was th thought everybody had told me I was gonna be tall because I was kind of skinny and lanky. So I thought, well, I'm just gonna be a model. You know, first that was before I was gonna be a designer, I was gonna be a model. And so I was like measuring myself every day. I was like, <laughs> and then it got to like 5'4", and it just got kind of got stuck at 5'4", and I got, well, I gotta rethink this. <laughs> Plan B. <laughs> anyway, so um, then I decided to go to Rhode Island School of Design. Then after freshman year of RISD, which was just foundation, it was just art, I decided to um, rig up my own exchange program. And I went to Paris, because my mother was still saying, you've got to go to Paris. <laughs> so I rigged up my own exchange program for sophomore year. And I went to the Zote Couture School in Paris. And I wanted to ask, too, what the differences were in the, the, what you learned at RISD as opposed to the Ecole de la Chambre Syndicale? Oh, very dramatically different. <laughs> so when I went to RISD, it was you know, really hippie art school and very free-spirited. And actually, the fashion department, which is very in there now, was the very out department because everybody was you know, more esoteric and they were a painter or a sculptor and they were doing something just you know, more creative than make, they weren't doing something that was commercial and the apparel department was considered commercial. Anyway, so after the fr freshman year of just art and foundation, I decided to go to Paris for a year and see if I really wanted to stay in fashion because, you know, RISD was sort of playing games on my head. <laughs> so I went to Paris and I went to this um, haute couture school, which was very old fashioned and they wouldn't let you use a pencil on your muslin or any marker or anything. Everything had to be done by threads. And you had to make this full muslin pattern and there couldn't be any marks on it and you had to present it to the teacher. And it was very, very old fashioned. Um, but anyway, I really, really learned a lot from that yes. because um, every muslin had to be beautiful, had to be a work of art. And your, your thread lines couldn't be crooked. You even had to, do grain lines by hand. So it was very intense and you had to press everything and present it. And also we had like art history and fashion history and we got to go to all the couture shows, which was great. Oh, fabulous. So there was a lot of benefits to that and, and it was a great year in Paris. And after that I decided I wanted to go, you know, I would just go back to RISD. And so I got full credit and I managed to just go right back in for junior year. Anyway, so I went back to RISD, and, and RISD was a little bit more, do, you know, it was a little more about drawing and portfolios. I mean, we did do a lot of drawing in Paris, but there was more focus on portfolios. And then um, we made, instead of just making the pattern, we were making the full projects. So, um, and then we had our big fashion show every year. And then we were doing full collections, but uh, RISD really had a lot of freedom, and it was just very art-oriented and creative, and you could do whatever you want. So I think the combination of the two educations was really great, you know, to have the, both the art yes. and the technical background of the French school. Yes. So it was great for me because when I actually had to make my clothes, I was very, you know, I got to be really good at pattern making. Well, and of course, the whole system of fashion was so different in Paris than it was in the United States, and is as well. 
Yeah, there is a lot more technique and handwork and that sort of thing. And well, back then, I mean, New York, I mean, the United States is really far more advanced now and everybody's doing far more creative things. And you can because you can get things made like in China and India and all that. But before, people just made things in Pennsylvania. Right. <laughs> and there were just, you know, a lot of factories that were just not that great and you couldn't get a lot of interesting things made yeah. where now you can get anything you want made here. So American fashion was more about really ready to wear, make yes. it fast, and, and there wasn't, I mean, there were some designers that were very expensive, obviously, yeah. you know, like an Oscar de la Renta or somebody, but most of the United States was just very ready to wear oriented. And there wasn't that much ready to wear in Paris. No, not so much, but when I was there, that was the beginning of the contemporary market. And that's when Kenzo hit the scene, yes. and Claude Montana, and Terry Mugler, and Chantal Thomas. So it was a very, very exciting yes. time in Paris. And they were like the new young designers, and they were renegades, and they all did like really cool stuff. And they were not as expensive as couture, right? but they, they were ready to wear, but they were kind of expensive ready yes. to wear. Yes, yes. I still have a lot of those clothes. Oh yes, <laughs> I'm glad you didn't get rid of those. Since there are probably a lot of students in the audience, maybe you could talk a little bit about what you feel you learned in the two schools. Well, um, I really feel like I could, I could just do every step of the way. And I feel like, um, well, you know, it's really interesting because I went to, about two years ago, I was here to the FIT presentation. Um, I guess when all the designer, the seniors showed their work. And I was very, very impressed because everything was just so elaborately made and complicated. And I just remember when I was at RISD, things were much more simplistic. I mean, we did do things like, you know, corsets and things like that. But I, I thought the creativity here was just amazing. It was very, very impressive. Everybody is doing, like, much more than they, they used to yes. in schools. Uh, and hopefully they're doing it themselves. <laughs> uh, anyway. Um, so I think like I really learned more about technique and couture and uh, handiwork in Paris. And then RISD was more do it yourself. Mm -hmm. And um, but like I said, there was a lot of freedom there. And we had a lot of, um, you know, freedom to experiment and do what we wanted. But I feel that I can always um, do every step of the process. Yeah. I mean, I, could, I can drape the dress. I mean, I've done tailoring. I've, I've, I've done all that. Well, it's interesting because FIT has a reputation for being really excellent technically, mm -hmm. that the students really, really learn how to do things. Um, and the ideal, I guess, is always to combine the technique with some kind of an artistic or free-spirited system. Right. What about business? Did either school tell you anything about the business of fashion? Absolutely not. <laughs> and, um, but I've, I've noticed, because I know the schools are really talking more about um, business, because I think it's a really important thing for everybody. And I, I know um, a lot of designers have gone on into their own businesses, and that's always like the biggest problem, is yeah. like cash flow and, and understanding you know, quantities and that sort of thing. Because it's a very challenging business. Um, you know, it's just, and it's always it's always easy to be the new kid on the block, and everything is yeah. easy and easy. And then you know, five years down the road, you're sitting with like inventory or whatever. But the the problems keep up and they escalate the the longer you're in business. Yeah. And you know, I always like to say I'm very hands-on and very involved with every step of the process. 
I went to Rwanda, mm -hmm. and I had a very interesting trip on working with some of the women's um, sort of cottage industry factories yes. there. And it was interesting. The, these women are so eager to learn, and they have foot-powered sewing machines. Yes. Everything, they have like very little electricity in Rwanda. So I did a lot of seminars, and I worked with them, and I, I showed them some sewing tips and everything, and I spent a week there. But it was, it was a very rewarding week because they really do need help, and they need, they need help, and they need business, and they need a lot of advice. So how, um, how do you think that will work on a larger scale? Because if you're going to be trying to you know, train women or workers in general, in the global south. How do they get integrated into this global fashion system? Well, most of them are affiliated with um, various agents. Um, this particular um, ones that I went to were represented by a company called Inigo Africa. Yes. Do you know that company? I've heard of it, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, and they have connected them to a lot of different companies. and. When we had a lot of retail stores, we did do a lot of business, and we, we did buy a lot of things from them. But what they want is ongoing business, yeah. and there was a very large company, and I don't want to mention the name, but had given them like a huge order one year, and then and they were just they just wanted an order every year. Right. And they were looking forward to the next year, and then they never came back. Yeah. So they want consistency. Of course. Yeah. Yeah, that, I mean, so that's, that's, that's one of the things that I was impressed that Dries van Noten has been working year after year, decade after decade, with a group of embroiders in Gujarat, because that seems different than a lot of companies that kind um, of fly in for and out. Right, right, right. But you interned with Clovis Ruffin? Yes, yes. How cool. What was that like? Yeah. You know, it, it you makes probably me, need to explain who he is to some members well, of the audience. Well, it makes me very sad because he's not really remembered, and he was really the most famous designer in New York at the time. And it was about 1972 or 73. And um, but it, this was a crazy story. I got an internship in New York with a guy that had gone to RISD. And I got there January 15th. I was be there for six weeks for winter session. And by February 1st, the company had gone out of business. And so we came in on... Monday morning, and the whole showroom was stripped, and so my internship was over, but the parent company who had closed them said, oh, we'll send you over to Clovis Ruffin. And so I was like, great. So they sent me down to Clovis Ruffin's studio, and it was a very cool um, space and time because um, they always had the music blaring, and it was cool people, and all those um, famous models at the time were always coming by. Like there was like Billy Blair and Pat Cleveland yes. and Elva Chen, and, and they were always coming by his studio. And, um, and there was just always cool people, and they were all going, always clubbing at these crazy Latin clubs every night. Yes. And everybody was always partying, and the music was blaring. And so it was a really fun four weeks. <laughs> but actually, um, he did hire me. When I came back to New York, he gave me a job. So that was mm -hmm. my first job in New York, too. So I was not only just an intern there. And he used to have these hu huge fashion shows, and he had all the top models. And it was just so exciting. And then, I, I don't know, just after a while, I guess the business just fizzled out. It just, um, 
It made me sad because he really was the top designer in New York in the contemporary market at the time. Um, so you remember it, it him, is right? a, Of course I remember him. I mean, that was a period when you had so many creative independents. I guess a lot of them were just undercapitalized. Right, right. Um, well, he was backed by the same people that backed Ralph Lauren right. at the time. So, but I don't know. But to, I, I don't know what happened. I really don't. But um, it just um, yeah, such a shame. He's really interesting. Shame. We have a, some of his work, but I'd like to get I more from the collection. That's I right, you couple. did exactly. <laughs> yeah, I collected a bunch of those. So anyway, so that was a great period in time, and his clothes were amazing. And then you went and got a job as the head designer of a dressmaking company, P.J. Walsh. Yes. So can you tell us about working with Bud Conheim and how that evolved? Well, I answered an ad in Women's Wear Daily. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, it was a great ad. It said, designer willing to travel to Europe. And I go, oh, that's, that works for me. <laughs> I'll take that job. I'll take that job. Uh, so anyway, um, I showed up. and. And it was a tiny little company that just started. And there was a person named PJ Walsh, but she had quit to go live with her boyfriend. So she left. <laughs> and so it was just, just me and a sewer. And I was like designer, pattern maker, cutter. And that was it. And we had like a salesperson and a receptionist and a production pattern maker. Anyway, so I made all my own patterns for about a year or two. And, but, as I said, things weren't that complicated in the United States, so it's not, not super challenging. Um, but anyway, so that, that business was really quite a roller coaster. But um, yeah, anyway, it was, it was really fun. But um, Bud had a great sense of humor. He was a really fun person to work with. But we were always getting in trouble because he always bought too much fabric. So if we needed 1,000 yards, he would buy 3,000 yards. Oh. <laughs> So I got to be the master fabric manipulator because, you know, we'd had this extra print that, of course, nobody wanted to see again. So I would figure out how to pleat it or smock oh. it or whatever. And I really came up with some great selling dresses by just having to be creative. And there used to be this company, and I haven't seen this technique around much at all. It, they did elastic embroidery. And it was this company, like in Brooklyn, and they had all these crazy patterns, and there'd be elastic in the bobbin. So it wasn't smocking. It would just be like a pattern. It could be flowers or different things. And I, I don't see that technique around much anymore. And I'm sure that company is long gone. Anyway, that was another way I got rid of uh, <laughs> <laughs> excess inventory. So anyway, we had some really big hits. And uh, you know, but it was always like up and down. So it was a total roller coaster. Yes. But we had a lot of fun. So then how did you end up starting Nicole Miller? Well, again, it's another um, story because that company, PJ Walsh, was we, we didn't own it. It was owned by a parent company. And the parent company had like eight different divisions and they were having they were in chapter eleven. They were having financial problems. So um, Bud and I, we just left, and uh, we took our employees actually, and we scraped together a hundred thousand dollars. And um, well, he had a hundred, I had fifteen, <laughs> <laughs> and we opened the business on one hundred fifteen thousand dollars. And so the story I was about to say about P.J. Walsh actually happened in this business because um, 
you know, we really didn't have much money. So $115,000, even back then, did not go that far because we had to pay rent, we had to pay salaries, the whole thing. But literally, the first month we were in business, I made this dress, which it's a blue sun with a hip smock. So I made this dress, and I refused to put hanger straps in it because people used to put hanger straps to make the yep. dress blue sun in the hanger, and I was like, no, no, it's just... And Really, the dress looked very avant-garde for the time. I mean, now it looks dumb, but <laughs> very avant-garde that year. Anyway, we just shipped that dress to the department stores, and it flew out everywhere. I mean, it just flew out. We had to just keep buying more and more fabric. And How we were wonderful. Selling. And back in the day, if something sold, they would reorder more right away. Now they wait till the next season. Right. <laughs> oh, it sold well. Oh, get more next season, whatever. Meanwhile, so all the stores were calling us for more and more of these dresses, and we were just selling thousands of them and thousands of them, and, you know, we couldn't get enough fabric to... to what about uh, workers? Were you hiring more workers to keep up with all the no, fashion orders? No, because it was factories. Yep. So we didn't own any factories, so we would just send it to the factories. Yep. So they were happy to have all this business. So we... And uh, one of my signatures, signatures was tiny little buttons, and it has kind of a Chinese collar with the five little buttons on the side. And, and then has the smock tip. Anyway, it sold like crazy, and then everybody in the United States copied it, like everybody. Yeah. And it was like under every label. And finally I just said, I gotta stop making this dress. Wow. So we moved on. No, and you started the business in 82, which, I mean, what was the situation like in New York then, the fashion competition, the whole scene? Well, you know, I didn't start out doing fashion shows because we didn't have the money. I think we were in business eight years before I had fashion shows. Yeah. But um, so we were just mainly just trying to stay afloat and sell clothes that would sell, you know, yeah. and make nice clothes. And we were kind of in the beginning of the contemporary market very early on. And contemporary was still kind of a new thing because... Well, now I guess they say bridge, but I think they used to say Missy. Mm, they said, yeah. <laughs> anyway, so we were the uh, contemporary market, and it was a huge thing. Um, so that went on for quite a while. And um, then, I guess in about 86 or 7, um, oddly enough, it all goes back to RISD. One of my former classmates called me, and he said, oh, I think you should open up a retail store. Yes. And it was really funny because there was some like 10,000 square foot store on 57th Street for like, you know, $5 million a year. And he goes, what about this? And I go, I think it's a little rich for my blood here. <laughs> so he said, so he had this little tiny store on Madison Avenue, which was 1,000 square feet. It was at between 66th and 67th Street. And I went and looked at it and I said, oh, this is it. We've got to take yes. this. So um, we opened the store. I think it was the end of 86, and, um, you know, I've always liked whimsical prints. We always used to do these fun prints and dresses, and, you know, I would have, like, fingernails on them, or, I don't know, just always some little gag, yeah. matches, whatever. And so when um, we opened up the store, Bud said, oh, why don't you make me a few ties? And I was just going to make them for him to wear or whatever, but the factories ends up sending us like four dozen or whatever. So we put them in the, in the store and they took off. And the first thing we did was this uh, Met Theater ticket. 
we never asked anybody for rights. Oh. We just we just borrowed everything, <laughs> every logo. So um, anyway, then the the Mets saw them and they came and bought them. And, oh, instead and, of suing you, they bought them. That's great. Well, the funny thing was is they'd carried them in the store for about three years, and then we had a letter from a Met lawyer saying to cease and desist. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, you know, you've been buying these ties from us for <laughs> so crazy. three years already. But anyway, that set in motion this whole men's tie business. And, I mean, we just sort of started borrowing logos like crazy. We made a candy print tie with M&Ms and Nestle's. And they all said, oh, thank you, but next time don't put us in with our competition. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, but then we started getting a we started getting a little nervous about it, so we started calling up and asking for permission. And most people would give us permission, and nobody asked for a royalty. And it just it exploded. And we ended up working with everybody, Marvel Comics, uh, uh, you know, everything from Coca Cola, Barbie, just about like every brand. We did like Pink Panther. We did you know movies. We did every alcohol, every beer, every everything. And we just had a huge business, and it was mostly men's ties, but we did women's scarves, too. And then, I don't know what happened, all of a sudden, men got conservative, and it turned into be casual Fridays, and nobody's wearing ties. And, right. You know, the tie business, it was great for about five years, and just kind of fizzled out, but it was really fun when it lasted. That sounds very cool. And we made uh, camp shirts and boxer shorts and all kinds of crazy things, and people are asking for them again. Well, putting that in a larger context, I mean, how how did your aesthetic evolve over the years? Because there it was sort of, seems like it was almost accidental and suddenly became a huge hit. How did you then evolve your aesthetic? Well, you know, I, I feel like my aesthetic is is always about the line or the line and the cut and the drape of the dress. But there are some things that are really you know, basic to my personality, like I've always had like a sense of humor about yes. things, and I've always had a sense of whimsy, and I like things that are, are fun. And, you know, the company has always been like a fun company and, a, you know, a fun yeah. place to work. And, you know, I, I was saying how I got really into fabric manipulation and pleating and smocking and all that. And if, if you see that dress closer, there's this pleat that we do. It's like title pleat, and the pleats interlock, and... I, just is so flattering on everybody's figure, but we just sold a ton of thing, a ton of dresses with, with this title pleat, and we've done them in you know silk fabrics and we've done them in metal fabrics and everything. So it was quite you know a big signature of mine for a long time was that pleating detail, and then you know the crochet and the beading, and yes. of course, and then I always liked the good girl bad girl thing. So I've always got the little bit of the badass thing yes. going. So that. It's the safety pins and the, the leather. And leather was always a great category for us. We always do a lot of leather things. Yeah. How would you describe the fashion system in New York, which you obviously succeeded in, in turning to your own advantage, but how was the system at large, and how has that evolved? Well, that has really changed. That's because, changed hugely. Because, I, you know, I have to say, when I started designing, designers were just designers. I mean, there was a few maybe that weren't, but mostly designers were designers. And like now, to enter this market, you're dealing with like influencers and stylists and socialites and actresses and singers. Everybody's <laughs> got a clothing brand. So, yeah. so um, I don't know, like somebody said, like the best thing to do, somebody was saying to me, the best thing to do if you want to be a designer is to be a stylist first or a magazine editor. But 
I don't know, maybe you need to be able to sing too. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of competition now, and there's, there's a lot of challenges. Uh, when I started having fashion shows, so finally, um, so we did, um, the ties were all like in the 80s, and then yes. we started having fashion shows in spring 91, so it was 1990. But the first year at a fashion show, there was only um, 40 shows. 40 shows. There was like right. one show per hour. Nobody overlapped. You had your time slot, and there was no two shows that day. I mean, no two shows at your time. And now, if you read the fashion calendar, there's like 10 shows every hour, or like five, or whatever. Yeah. It's very, and very where, crowded. And where were you having your shows? I, I've had them all over, but the, the very first shows I had were at this club called Laura Bell's, and I'm not exactly sure. It might have been like 45th Street, like east-west, 45th, kind of towards 5th Avenue, I think. I think between 6th and 5th, but I don't know what that club is now. Yeah. And we've had several at the public library. Mm -hmm. And then we had one at the Roxy once, and we, you know, the old Roxy, the roller skating rink. And then we've had, you know, many in the tents. Yes. So, you know, we've been all over the place. Um, your store, you mentioned your store before. How important do you think it is for designers to have their own retail space? Well, I think it's really nice to have a retail space. And at one point we had 30 stores, but it just, I don't like being in malls because malls have like extra common charges. You have to stay there till nine o'clock at night. I had a store in, in West Palm Beach and the girls used to lock the doors because you know, these kids would come out of the movies and they would just all shoplift and everything. And the, the laws at the mall were that you had to stay open till nine, seven days a week and that sort of thing. So I didn't like dealing with malls. So as the mall leases came up, I just got out of them. And I had only freestanding stores. And, you know, I just, um, I got an offer for Madison Avenue, so I gave that up, and uh, our rent in Soho went, like, through the roof. So, I mean, everything was an individual story, so I don't miss my retail stores at all. Because yes. <laughs> but I'm not saying I wouldn't do another one at some point, but if I, I do that again, I would do one. I just don't want to have, and, oh my God, you know the worst thing? Is people steal your employees. I mean, I would have great store manager, and the next thing, Prada would steal her. You know, yeah. these people go around and <laughs> say who's like the <laughs> the sharpest salesperson around or whatever, yeah. and then they go and steal them, offer them more money. Yeah. So we were always like finding a new store manager for this, and when you have, you know, all over the country. Anyway, yeah. I just didn't want to do that anymore. Now, how about, how did your process change over the years in all kinds of terms? I mean, design, business, production, retailing, communications. Well, um, a lot of, I mean, I felt like in the beginning, you know, like I said, we only had factories in Pennsylvania. Everything was like American made and we were always, nobody would make a bias dress for us. I right. mean, nobody would do a hem on a bias dress. And with, we, since then we've gotten all these like um, Chinese factories that have moved here and they do a great job. Plus you could make things in China, which we couldn't before right. and make things in India. So everything's more, production is much more global. Right. Which is great, because you can do so many things we couldn't do when I first started in business. So I'm really happy about that. And then, um, obviously, when we started out, like computers. Right. <laughs> it was, nothing was like computers or email. I mean, everything's gotten so much more technological than it used to be. And do you think, how do you think that's affected design? Well, 
So much design, I know, I think, in a lot of companies is so formulaic. Yeah. I mean, you're just like charts and plotting things in and filling things in and, you know, flats. I mean, I hate flats because they always look bad. They just never look like the real garment. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I, my sketches would always have life and then somebody would put it into a flat and i go, oh. <laughs> I know, some people do some nice flats, though, but for the most part, they, I just, I don't know. And I just feel everything flat never looks as good. What do you think is the main, the main purpose of a fashion show, really? Because, I mean, it is so indelibly a part of our memories of fashion. What's, well, how does it function, both well, at the time really, and later? They really, really, really do create a lot of excitement. Yeah. And I have to say, because I was, you know, I had been in business seven or eight years or whatever, and then I had my first fashion show, and everything just went magnified. Yeah. Everything just blew up. And, you know, all of a sudden I was being asked to all kinds of events and I was being, you know, asked to do this and that. And, I mean, just the opportunities that came my way just expanded greatly just after having a fashion show. And also, it's so good for morale. I mean, it's like the whole staff gets so excited about, you know, the show. And, And meanwhile... People would say to me, don't you get excited? And I go, no, I don't get excited till it's over. <laughs> it's just, but it was just like, no, I'm not excited. I'm like a wreck. You know, I'm just like nervous about like, what's going to go wrong this time? Or is somebody going to hate it? Or is somebody going to say something bad about it? Or, you know, so there's always so many variables. You just end up being like worried, worried, worried. And then, then you can relax after. And in general, how do you think fashion shows, your fashion shows have evolved over time? Have you seen changes? Well, I have to say, I do like all my earlier shows in, in a way better because um, I felt like we were just more whimsical and fun, even though I've had a lot of fun in my later, later shows too. And there, there always is some thread of, of whimsy in the yes. theme. I mean, we did yes. like... Um, kind of a let them eat cake show once uh-huh. called the revolution and we did you know a Copacabana Rio show so we've done like some fun things and we had like a you know break dancer open the show and so we, we've we always try to do something that's a little bit fun but you know some of the things that were just not realistic um, that we used to do and that were I mean the very first show we did this big dress this dress with a big sweet and low packet on it uh-huh. Which, I don't know if you remember that, but it's, it's kind of memorable. And uh, I didn't have one. I finally got one the other day. <laughs> yes. I a store in Brooklyn, so. Anyway, I'm, I'm always trying to um, get my, recollect my archives. That's because right. there's so many things I, I, I don't know, just went by the wayside. Are you setting up a place to take care of it? Where do you yeah, keep I have your a, archives? I have a big archives yep. closet in the office, yeah. How fabulous. Well, I know we've started to get some questions from the audience. Okay. Uh, and what did I predict? There's a question. Do you have any advice for fashion students starting off today? <laughs> well, I think one of my bits of advice there was the magazine editor and stylist. <laughs> yeah. But I think it's really important that you stay focused. And I, I think you have to have some um, idea and have a strong sense of self. I used to see designers that, you know, one year they'd have like this job and that job and whatever, and they kind of go as a job. But I think you have to really develop your own identity and, and stick with it. 
and you have to be your own advocate. And um, you've got to be a self-promoter. I mean, these days you really have to be a self-promoter. So you have to you have to do all your social media stuff, and you have to do the best you can, and really focus on your goals. Yes, that whole kind of self-direction. I used to see that with students. Some students you could just see they'd worked out their plan of action, and they would just head towards it. Yeah, yeah. Another great question. What is your most cherished personal fashion item? Uh, In this archive you're developing, what's the thing that you love most? Oh, of, of my own. Of your or own, my yes. own. Okay. Or uh, perhaps in general. I'm not sure from the question. Well, it's funny because once you had asked me here to speak about a Claire McArdle thing. Yes. And I wore my Claire McArdle. Yes. And I still have that. So that's kind of my one treasured thing in my closet. Yeah. Um, but I, I think all my clothes from the 90s, I, I, I really like a lot. And Claire McArdle is fabulous, too. I remember showing a French curator and museum director our Claire McArdles at the museum, mm -hmm. and he was just so blown away by them that he, they really didn't have any in France. Yeah, well, I have quite a good one. It was a, a three-piece kind yes. of piquet thing, so it was a really good piece. Oh, wow, okay, we've got a lot, all right. Um, you did a number of food print dresses in the 1990s. What was the inspiration or story behind those prints? Wow, we did a lot of funny ones. There was a fettuccine. Uh -huh. uh, there was an arugula salad. <laughs> um, but those were just like the food, food objects. There was a lot of, um, oh, there was like tomatoes. There was um, all kinds of fruit. Uh, uh, there was vegetables. But then we did a lot of things for um, like junk food, like uh, you know, we did potato chips and, you know, like Lay's. We did a lot of things for corporations, too. So, um, you know, those were the corporate ones. But I don't know. We were just, everything was always, like, fun. And what crazy idea could we come up with tomorrow? And, uh, and I had, like, you know, a great bunch of assistants. And we, should, we would just go, oh, let's do this. Let's do that. And, uh -huh. and that's how it would come about. Well, we're going to do a show next year on food and fashion. You should send us some pictures from your archive. We'll see if you can borrow something. Yeah, sure. What's your favorite decade of fashion? Oh, the 60s. 60s, Of okay. course. I just yep. love that mod era, and I loved Twiggy, and, and she was, like, the best. Yes, yes. What's one thing you'd tell someone who wants to start their own business? Uh, well, take a business course, I guess. Yeah. But... Um, I think, you know, one of the things that always gets people is like inventory and, you know, getting stuck either with clothing or getting stuck with fabric. And so I told my stories of getting over excess fabric. But there's been times, like one time, we had a, a big order for Saks Fifth Avenue and it was a tulle skirt with a little tube top with like sequins on it. And the production person had never checked the sweater, so we shipped them to Saks and all the sequins popped off. Oh, no. And so we got a 500-piece return. And we couldn't even sell them to anybody else. I mean, you couldn't even close it out to Lomans because they were just damaged. But, and production is really important, and fit is really important. Your clothes have to fit. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's funny. I was, I was in Paris once, and I, I tried on these Balenciaga pants, and they'd done the stretch the wrong way. Oh, God. 
The stretch was like in the length, not across. Oh, God. So they do things, they make mistakes too. Well, it's funny you mentioned Paris because here's someone who's BA programmers in Paris who's writing, what advice do you have for a student studying in Paris beginning to break into the fashion industry? Presumably over there, wants to break into Paris fashion industry. Um, well, you know, I'm not sure because it's changed, but when I went to school in Paris, a lot of my classmates got these jobs in the couture houses and various houses around, and they would get paid like $40 a week. <laughs> Literally, I remember it was like 200 francs a week for like a, you know, 60-hour work week, and they'd work them to the dog. Dogs. I don't think they have the labor laws we had here, <laughs> but things have changed. I'm sure it's a lot easier. And I have um, a former intern of mine is in Paris now, and I think she got a job because she interned first, and so when she went back, she did get a job with the company she interned. So it's maybe a good idea to look for internship possibilities in Europe if you're looking for a job. Now here's someone who's asking about the release of your fun print collections, like the Barbie one. And she says, P.S. I'm wearing the Barbie kimono now. <laughs> so do you remember when you did the Barbie prints? Um, I don't remember exactly. I would, I would estimate it was about 1992 or three. It would be around about that time. And we also did two Barbie dolls. Yes. Here's someone who says, love your jacket. Is this something you would consider doing again? Oh, this jacket? This, this, yeah, that jacket. Oh, well, we've always done a lot of embellished leather jackets. And um, the most popular one has been the Evil Eye. And I think the Evil Eye one is still available. Um, this crown one is sold out because I have the last one. <laughs> Here's someone asking, um, do you have any advice for adapting to the industry's constant changes? Um, well, there's, I mean, I got a crazy request the other day about, you know, the California Proposition 65, where, like, they think every chemical in the world causes cancer, so you, you have to, like, get all these documents when you, for certain states that are really, like, strict about this. So, I mean, life has gotten a lot more complicated than it used to be. So there's a lot of these issues that, that turn up all the time, um, that people are just much more particular. And, and now with all the echo thing, and you know, I'm, I'm very big on recycling, and we've done a lot of um, reuse of vintage clothes um, for some of our collections whenever we can. Um, but um, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm just not a, a big believer in polyester being like so eco-friendly, which a lot of people are trying to tell us it is, because it's still going into the water system. So I'm kind of against that. Um, but I know there's like this Fashion Act is coming up, and um, and then there's the the Higgs index, which yeah. Scandinavia has gone against the Higgs index, and they are not allowing people to tag that as a standard anymore. So, I mean, and a lot of things are like greenwashing. It's, it's a very complicated world. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, we try to do what we can and try to be as eco-friendly as we can, but it's, it's not an easy thing to navigate these days. It's not. And you have to really just stay educated about it. One person's asking, this is an interesting question. I think a lot of people are interested in this. 
on average, what do you think, how many dresses or looks from a show actually get produced for sale? Well, it, you know, it varies from year to year, but I would say we would probably mostly make about 60%, right. 60, yeah, a good 60%. And I've had shows that maybe it's been less, and I've had shows that it's been more. So, but I, I'd say 60s. Yeah. Because there's always a few things, like, I mean, everything else here was produced, but this was not. Right. Um, I mean, so we probably could work, now yeah. make it in India or whatever, but this never got made, but the other ones got made. Some, this is a young audience. Someone's asking, what age were you when you made your first serious career steps in the fashion world? Well, I mean, I feel like I got out of college, you know, and when I came to New York and, well, I guess, I guess my first job with Clovis yeah, Ruffin. That's right. And this is the last question here. Who is your favorite celebrity to work with? Well, you know, it's interesting, but lots of times when I dress a celebrity, I don't get to meet them because they get dressed in LA. Right. And we send the clothes to LA and that sort of thing. Um, but I did meet Angelina Jolie after she wore the dress, not before. Yeah. And she was always like very charming and very nice. But I worked with Felicity Huffman, she's really nice, and Angelica, Angelica Houston, and um, Beyonce, we've dressed a lot. Yes. But um, I haven't really done a fitting with her. You know, I've met her, but I haven't really done a fitting with her. Um, I don't know, I mean, I'd, very often we just would send it to our celebrity dressing company in LA and blah, 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 gets, they, they send it to the stylist or whatever in it yeah. and uh, you keep your fingers crossed. Yes, <laughs> yes, they're gonna exactly. Wear it. And so like, when, and um, we had dressed um, like Joss Stone quite a bit and Cindy Lauper quite yes. a bit and Cheryl Crow, so I've dressed a lot of musicians too. Yes, that's right. Is there anything important we haven't talked about? that you'd like to add now? Oh, but, um, you know, I'm very happy to be showcasing this. And, because um, it's our 40th anniversary year. Yes. So it's, it's perfect, so. And um, I've been, you know, going through all the old books and, and, you know, seeing things all over again. And I've gone through all kinds of old press pictures and stuff. So it's been kind of nice to revisit all those things. And I feel like, as a company, we've all st always stayed young. Yes. I've seen companies the longer they're in business and the clothes get dumber and dumber and dumber and I, I felt like we've always kept that kind of integrity and you know tried to stay young and modern and you know keep on that track. Yes, yes. Well as you said, the fun the fun aspect of it. What's the point if it's not fun? Yeah, exactly. Would you join me in thanking Nicole? <laughs>